Good morning. My name is Steve. And uh, today, our passage comes from the book of Acts, chapter 25, starting in verse 13. Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered that the man be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in the case of such evils as I supposed, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, on the day when you brought your children out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you brought them into the wilderness, and one morning they woke up without any food to eat, and they saw on the ground manna from heaven. They did not make it. It was provided solely as a gift from you. And so, Father, we find ourselves in the exact same situation this morning. We are hungry. We long to be fed. But if you don't provide us the food, if you don't open this text up for us, we will go away hungry. And so we implore you, open our ears, awaken our hearts, and make us glad and willing recipients of this teaching. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Okay, in case you haven't been here for a while, uh, or maybe this is your first time, we have been going through the book of Acts. And what we've been saying in the book of Acts is that the church of Jesus Christ is set here on this earth to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to witness to the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of other organizations in the world, there's a lot of even religious organizations that do a lot of the same things that we do, like charity or, um, or community or belonging or, or teaching, anything like that. But, but the church, the church of Christ exists to do one thing that if we don't do, nobody else will do, and that is to witness to the resurrection of Jesus 
Christ. And so that's our vocation, and we embrace it gladly. And even though we've been saying that for nearly every week, um, and even though we've seen the apostles in Acts preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we haven't actually stopped for too long and considered the resurrection itself. And so I'd like to do that today. If we're going to bear witness to the resurrection in this world, we need to stop and think through what it is we believe ourselves about it. So it falls to me to cover actually an enormous section of the book of Acts. I've got from chapter 21 through 26, and I chose this one little portion of that whole section, not because I'm going to neglect everything else, but because I think this summarizes the whole section that we're dealing with. So let me catch you up on the narrative of what happens in all those chapters so that you have the context, and then we'll jump into this text right here. So last week, we left Paul, the apostle, in the Asian city of Ephesus. And from there, he travels around a bit, but he has made up his mind to return home to Jerusalem. Now, in every place that he stops along this journey, he finds uh, what, what they call in uh, Acts, the brothers. He finds the Christians in that community, and he stays with them. And in every place where he stays, they beg him, sometimes through tears, you must not go to Jerusalem. Why? Why must he not go to Jerusalem? An excellent question. Because there were prophets who were telling Paul, when you go down to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you and treat you violently and throw you into prison and maybe even kill you. And so these people who loved Paul dearly said, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem. And he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Don't you know that I'm willing to suffer and even to die for the cause of Christ? And so he goes to Jerusalem. And as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, he visits the apostles, the the bigwigs. And and they tell him that the word on the street is that Paul has been teaching that the Jewish law is now null and void and, and that he's telling everybody to upset the Jewish law, destroy the Jewish tradition and cultures, which of course was untrue. So in order to prove that this was not the case, Paul goes into the temple for a week and he purifies himself according to the Jewish law. And when that week had passed, the Jewish authorities see him in the temple and they just assume that he had brought a Gentile into the temple with him, which he didn't. And that would have been highly illegal. Now, in the next chapters, we see Paul as a result of that little encounter, they, they bring him in uh, and they, they put him on trial. And so in the next chapters, we see Paul being tried first at the tribunal of Jerusalem and then before the Jewish council and then before the Roman provincial tribunal and then being in prison for two years, just hanging out, waiting, and then having his trial renewed before a new governor and then finally King Agrippa. So these, this little section of chapters here is all about Paul being put on trial again and again and again and giving roughly the same speech again and again and being left in prison over and over again. And what's interesting about these repeated trials and testimonies from Paul is that the Jewish authorities keep seeking to put him to death, either by legal means or by like vigilante justice. And, and the Gentile authorities keep scratching their heads going, what is the problem? This guy, they, they want to kill him, but 
It's not square. He's just done nothing to deserve death. And so we get this conundrum as we go through here. So that's the story. And what I want to focus on is one phrase. What I just read to you came from the Roman governor, Festus. And I want to focus on one phrase that he says. And the context is, is that the king of that area, Agrippa, comes uh, into Festus's uh, province, and Festus is trying to explain what's going on with this guy, Paul, why he's on trial. And what he says is, in verses 18 and 19, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own law, and, here it is, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Now, they say this man is dead. This is Festus's summary. All these people over here say Jesus is dead. Paul says Jesus is alive. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody on the outside observed me for a year and then said, listen, I don't know, I'm not sure what he's all about. All I know is everybody else says Jesus is dead, but that guy says Jesus is alive. I would be happy. That is a marvelous summary of what is at the heart of our faith, that everybody else thinks Jesus is dead. We believe Jesus is alive. So apparently when Paul spoke over those two years on trial, when Paul spoke of all the things that he said, what Festus came away with was, they say Jesus is dead, but Paul says Jesus is alive. That's what stuck with him. And here's why this is so important to consider this together. It seems to me that when um, people in our current world, current culture, um, think of Christians, the first thing they think is probably not resurrection. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but that, that's how it seems to me. Um, intend, and instead, they, they tend to think of uh, political positions. They tend to think of, oh, those are the people who oppose X or Y or Z. That's, that's the general, um, that's the general understanding of who we are and what we believe. Um, And that tells me that we have, at least to some degree, um, failed in our vocation as witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It tells me that we've been speaking louder and longer about those things rather than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is at the center of all things. And so we must therefore return to our vocation. If we don't witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one will. And if we cease to think about and cease to speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we are in danger of believing, not not in our words, but, but in our guts, that Christianity is just another system of moral improvement. And by the way, we will be in danger of communicating that to the rest of the world also. So, What I'd like to do is spend our time together this morning considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ together. And I'm going to use Festus's comment as my outline. Two points. Number one, the world believes Jesus to be dead. Number two, we believe Jesus to be alive. How about that? All right. 
Number one, the world believes Jesus to be dead. So Festus, this Roman governor, in no way a Christian or a Jew, when he wants to describe the crux of the issue to Agrippa, says, they believe Jesus is dead, Paul believes Jesus is alive. And that's one of the clearest delineations between people in this world that we find anywhere in the Bible. You either believe Jesus is alive or you believe Jesus is dead. Now, when I say dead, I mean dead. Like, like not alive anymore. As in, when Jesus was crucified and laid in a tomb in the first century, that no matter how great he was, no matter how marvelous his teaching was, all of that, that what happened to his body is the same thing that happens to everybody's body. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yes. Um, now, some people will say, oh, yeah, but he lives in our hearts. Um, which is not being alive. That's still being dead, but just remembered, okay? It's not the same thing. So all the euphemisms, put them aside for a second. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ on the third day was raised physically, not spiritually, but actually bodily, then the only alternative left is that he is dead. And if you take a Christianity with a dead Jesus, and you take a Christianity with a resurrected, alive Jesus and put them together, they could not be further apart than the East is from the West. And I'm going to try to show you why here in a moment. Now, if this is you, then let me ask you the same question that Paul asks in chapter 26, verses six and eight. Now, this is, this is not what I read. This, he says this in uh, the second or the third or no, the fourth of his trials. Uh, chapter 26, verses six and eight, he says, now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And then here's the question. So, so if this is you, let me ask you this question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. Why is it thought incredible to any of you that God raises the dead? Now that is a marvelous question, and now I ask it to you. Why do you think that it is incredible, and the word literally means unbelievable, why do you think it is unbelievable that God raises the dead? Maybe your answer begins with, well, I don't believe that there is a God. Okay, my response would be, how do you know? Who told you? Um, science told me. Um, well, if science told you that, then it was speaking out of turn. If science tells you that God does not exist, then you should treat it, that answer with the same gravity as you would treat your drunk uncle at the family reunion when he starts spouting off about politics. He knows nothing. He, he, anyway, um, a little insight. In, okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not poo-pooing science. Um, but as a discipline, the only data with which science can work is material. It, it's that which is observable, okay? God is not like a chair or a molecule that you can observe and put under a microscope. You cannot analyze him in a petri, di in a pe petri? petri dish. Uh, 
or perform experimentation upon him. So drawing conclusions about God based on scientific data is like trying to mow your grass with a cheeseburger. <laughs> Wrong tool for the job, just so you know. The existence of God is a metaphysical question. It's a philosophical question. It's a theological question. Now, I don't have the time to try to convince you of God's existence, and I'm probably not a good enough philosopher to do it anyway, but I will say this. There's this um, great argument. If, you, uh, if you've ever read Blaise Pascal, uh, he's, uh, how do I say it? Pensé. Pensé. All right. I, it sounds so arrogant just to speak French. I don't know. All right. Um, <laughs> Love you. Uh, <laughs> Pense. Um, okay, uh, anyway, Blaise Pascal. He's a mathematician, a philosopher, a theologian. And um, he says this in that book. Um, Do you believe in infinity? You know, infinity. Um, and most people, rational people would say, yes, I believe infinity. So then he says, okay, is that number odd or even. <laughs> um, so, so like, it's a number, right? It's a constant. Is it odd or is it even? And his point is, okay, so we, we believe it is rational to believe in the existence of something without simultaneously understanding its nature. Okay. Now, if you can believe that infinity exists without knowing whether it is odd or even, then let us suppose that something else infinite exists, or more to the point, someone else, and let's say that this someone does and did what the Bible says he does and did, like created all things with words of power, uh, performed great acts of redemption on behalf of his people. Now, given all of that, why would it be incredible or unbelievable that such a God could raise someone from the dead. Now, I don't know this to be true, but I suspect that there are at least two reasons why somebody would say, yeah, I, I find that unbelievable that, that somebody has been resurrected from the dead. And number one is this. Miracles violate the laws of nature and therefore they cannot occur. To, to believe in the miraculous is to believe in the irrational. Now, what I'm about to say, you, you either need to stop listening right now and come back or listen to everything because the qualifications are about to happen. Um, just as science is the wrong tool to answer metaphysical questions, reason, rationality, is the wrong tool to answer questions about the miraculous. Okay, stay with me. L let's say you believe um, there's a cat in your cupboard. Door's closed, you can't see it, you don't know. And, and, and you, you look around at all the counters, at everything that's around, you look for hair, you're looking for clues to try to piece together what could have happened, if the cat is in there or not. And let's say there, there's no clues. There's no material for your reason to work with. Um, in that case, it would be, your reason is going to be the first thing to tell you, this is not my job. 
Go open the cupboard and find out. Like, go, this is not a job for the reason. This is a job for the senses. You just, you just need to pull it open and see it. It's either there or it's not, but I can't help you here. There's no evidence for me to work with. I cannot help you. So um, you, you can't reason your way into believing in miracles as long as you hold the current foundations of your reasoning, namely that miracles cannot happen. Dead people stay dead. As long as that's there on the foundation, you can't reason. So the invitation to you is not to remain where you are puzzling over whether or not the cat could be in the cupboard. The invitation is go open the door. Taste and see. And then we can talk. Now, second question, or at least the second reason why I think some people might find Christ's resurrection unbelievable is probably the more fundamental reason. And that is, they simply don't want to believe it's true. I think that's probably the case that covers more of uh, us than the first. I find it fascinating in this fourth recounting of Paul's conversion narrative on the Damascus Road that he includes a phrase here that he includes nowhere else in all the times that we get this story in the book of Acts. As Paul recounts this story to King Agrippa, he says, this is in chapter 26, 13 and 14, he says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, that's what we get in every other account, of which there are many, of Paul's conversion in this book. But in this one, he adds a phrase that's astonishing to me. He says, Jesus, the risen Christ says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? G-O-A-D-S, goad. Now, a goad, in case you don't know, is like a long stick with a point at the end of it that farmers in the ancient world um, used to stick their cattle with. If there's a stubborn ox and it's not pulling the plow, you just hit it. Uh, with the point and they would start going. But every once in a while, there was a very stubborn ox that would not move with the jabbing of the goad and they would do the only thing they knew how to do which was to rear up and kick. The problem with that is, if you're an ox and if there's any oxes listening, you know, reform your ways. If the problem with this is that when the ox kicks against the goad, the farmer sees that as evidence that more goading is necessary. So, Paul, as we know, used to be the kind of guy who thought Jesus was dead. In fact, he so fully believed that Jesus, Jesus was dead that he pursued and killed anyone who said Jesus was alive. But here, the risen Lord himself tells Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, <clears throat> we're not given any more information about precisely what he's referring to there, precisely what he means. But I wonder, when, when Saul, who was Paul before his conversion, when Saul stood over the dead body of Stephen, 
the first martyr of the church, whose death Saul approved when he stood there? Did he feel somehow that his arguments were unanswerable? Did did he somehow feel the goad, the, the prick of the goad in his conscience? Or or did he feel it elsewhere? Uh, All we know is, the more he felt the smart of the goad, the more he kicked. And kicking, and kicking, and just kicking madly so as to make it stop. And most people, um, most people that I've met who don't believe that Jesus Christ is alive and therefore deserves their unhindered allegiance fall into that category. There there seems to me to be precious few who have truly and methodically sorted through all the evidence and uh, weighed it in the scales with serious consideration. It seems like more people disbelieve for a reason like uh, science, something, something, irrationality, something else. And they they go about their day, which is fine. Um, But some of these people, and I won't say all, some of them, when the ceaseless churning of their lives grows quiet, they feel the smart of the goad. What if Christ really is alive? What if there really is a judgment from which I cannot escape except by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ? What if my sins are more than I can pay for on my own? But then we get to our senses and we begin to kick until the pain stops. So the question now at this place is, do you feel it? Do you feel the point of the goad? Does it hurt you to kick against it? You need to understand, the one who holds the goad and pricks your conscience does so not because he, is, he hates you, not because he wants to see what it's like for you to squirm under the pain. He's doing it because he loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. And he wants to do something magnificent for you, namely bring you into his family, forgive all of your sins, wipe that away, and give you a seat at his everlasting table. And maybe you feel that, maybe, but you would further object. Well, if God wants me to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, why doesn't he make it more plain? Why doesn't he convince me like with some kind of miracle? Okay, you know, right in the sky, I'm driving by the, the thing and there's a billboard that says you, your name, this is what, okay. Why not something like that? Answer, well, Um, First of all, I I get the angst out of which that question arises. Um, But let me say this. If you read the scriptures, you'll find out two things about miracles. Number one is that during the ministry of Jesus, anybody who demanded a miracle, Jesus either did not perform one or when he did, uh, it served to further harden them. Okay, so the efficacy of miracles is shaky at best. Okay, secondly... The eras in scripture in which we see a lot of miracles, like all congregated at once, happen to coincide with many martyrdoms as well. 
So if we're asking for the miracles, we better be careful because we also might find ourselves at the end of a sword to go with it. So that, that's what we find out in the scriptures about miracles. Okay, fine, you say, I'm good without it, but um, I don't need a miracle to convince me, but at least could God just present himself more clearly with better evidence? Now, I'm going to go back to Blaise Pascal here. Um, I've never read anything like this. He's marvelous, and I hope that you'll indulge me to read it in its entirety. This is is breaking so many public speaking rules to read something this long, but you guys, it is so marvelous. So um, so listen, listen to this. If God had wished to overcome the obstinacy of the most hardened, he could have done so by revealing himself to them so plainly that they could not doubt the truth of his essence. As he will appear on the last day with such thunder and lightning and such convulsions of nature that the dead will rise up and the blindest will see him. This is not the way he wished to appear when he came in mildness, because so many men had shown themselves unworthy of his clemency. It was therefore not right that he should appear in a manner manifestly divine, that is explosively, um, and absolutely capable of convincing all men, but neither was it right that his coming should be so hidden that he could not be recognized by those who sincerely sought him. Okay, here we listen. He wished to make himself perfectly recognizable to them. Thus, wishing to appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart and hidden from those who shun him with all their heart. He has qualified our knowledge of him by giving signs which can be seen by those who seek him and not by those who do not. There is enough light for those who desire only to see and enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. Yes, yes, oh my goodness, yes. All right, now, I've said it, the church exists to witness to the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that way, we exist for those who do not yet believe. And if if you want to believe, you have all the light that you need, and frankly, all the light you will ever get. If you do not want to believe, then there will never be enough light for you. But if you're in that first category, my admonition is this. Believe that Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of your sins and was resurrected on the third day for your justification before the Father, and you shall be saved. Okay, I spent longer on that than I intended to. Um, But let's go to the second point. First point, the world believes Jesus is dead. The second point, but we believe that Jesus is alive. What does the resurrection mean for Christians? During his trial in Jerusalem, Paul makes that, the answer to that question plain for us. And this comes from 23 verse, Acts 23, verse 6. He says, brothers, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
You see, they're, they're putting him on trial because of, oh, you brought a Gentile into the temple. You're telling everybody to upturn the law. No, he says, no, that, those are secondary issues and frankly not even true. I am on trial because in reference to the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So I want to focus on that word hope. When we consider that Jesus is alive, what that does to God's people is produces hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a mere doctrine for us, something we just like believe to join a church. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so central to our faith that if you were to remove that one doctrine and leave everything else untouched, the whole thing falls to the ground. In fact, Paul, the apostle, writes later in a letter called 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 15. He says, listen, if the resurrection of Christ If he was not raised, then we're still dead in our sins. Nothing matters anymore. Go eat, drink, be merry. The resurrection is that central to what we believe and who we are. But we are convinced that Jesus is alive, and that means that we hope. You see, it's, it's not only unbelievers who long for clearer sight of Jesus. We long to see his face. Our hearts ache to look upon the one who has been so kind to us, so generous to us, so loving. And no small part of our angst here in this world is that Christ does hide himself. He does not make himself plain as he will in that day. On rare occasions, he does part the curtain and fill us with rapture, but that is not our main course. And so we walk along on our pilgrimage to the celestial city with the hope that we shall see him. And it is this hope, by the way, which gives us the ballast to survive anything along that road. Um, Years ago, I took a course on sailing um, and got my license, although it's lapsed by now. I don't even know how to do it anymore. But then, um, uh, one of the things I learned about sailing was how to get an anchor uh, to bite into the sand. And I I thought, you know, you just throw the thing over and that's the end of it. Uh, Not true. Um, If you're good, you can do that. But we were not good. And so... What we had to do is every time we pulled into a place and wanted to set the anchor, we threw the anchor out, and then one of us had to get some scuba gear on, not scuba, um, what's the other kind? Snorkeling gear, and um, go go down to the the sea bottom there and make sure the teeth were in the sand um, and confirm that it was truly dug in. And uh, the reality is if the boat is anchored well, it's not going to go anywhere. We could have had a tropical storm, the boat might have been tossed back and forth, and maybe even suffered damage, but it would not move from its anchored position. Now, the second thing you need to know about anchors is that not only does it have to sink deep into the sea floor, but the other end of it has to be attached to the frame of the boat, like the central organizing principle of the boat. In other words, you can't just tie an anchor to the handrail of the ship. Uh, If it moves just a little, it'll snap loose and your boat will suffer damage and drift away. It must be attached to the core of the ship which holds it together. Um, The author of Hebrews says that hope is like an anchor to the soul. 
that, that if we have hope, we can endure anything. And these verses tell us the very same thing. This anchor of God's faithfulness, this anchor of hope won't work unless the other side of it is attached to your soul. That is the central integrating reality of our being. Hope in God, if it is merely attached to the outer layers, won't help. It'll rip free when the, when the hurricane sets in. But if by God's grace, we all, by the Spirit, work these truths into the very core of who we are, if we allow God's Spirit to so shape our hearts to the hope of the resurrection, then it won't matter if the hurricane is bending us to the ground and threatening to break us in half. We will not be crushed. Sorely tried, sorely tempted, yes, but not crushed. Our anchor is set. Our hope is firm. We shall see him. And one day, beloved, we shall be resurrected. And in that day, our hope will become sight. We shall see him and he shall wipe away every tear from our eyes. There shall not be death anymore. Neither shall there be pain or sickness but we shall see him and all shall be well. And that hope is the anchor of our souls. Well, we come to the table now and this table is one of the main means by which that anchor becomes attached to our soul. This week, we're a little further along in our pilgrimage than we were last week. And Christ has come to set this table for us in order to fortify us so that one day, so we can stay on the pilgrimage and one day see him. But for now, this table actually witnesses to the hidden God. Here, there's just enough light for those who want hope to receive it. But there's just enough darkness for those who do not want hope and want to continue kicking against the goads. But the invitation is to take and eat. Taste and see that he is good. And so for all who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is alive and today sits at the Father's right hand, forever making intercession for all of us. For all of you who believe, this table is for you and you are most welcome. And if you are the one who is kicking against the goads, the invitation is to cease. There, there's a place for you here today. There's a place, a seat at this table. This is what the goads are for. This is where he's trying to direct you so that he might feast with you and bring you into the family of God. So if you would only believe, come join us at this table. Let us pray. Father, what more can I say except that you must awaken us to these realities. You must awaken us to these truths. We, we come to this table now, and I would imagine that among all of these people, there are those who are walking on the heights of joy, 
but there are also those who are in the deep valley of despair. But you knew that when you set this table for us. And so I pray that this bread and this cup would simultaneously be a, um, an expansion of our joy, but also a balm in our weakness and in our suffering. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.